Thank you, Mike. And uh, Mike's one of our new deacons and really proud of him to be up here sharing that tonight. Now you here Saturday night, you're getting an added bonus. Uh, because right before the service, uh, Pastor Ray Dix from Berean Fellowship Church in Gary caught me out in the commons and said, hey, you know, I'm here. I'd love to say something to the church. And so he's going to stand right wherever he is. I think over here and just say it. So you listen good. Brother Dix, good to have you here tonight. be feeling the love tonight. Thank you. And a warm welcome to each of you uh, from Berean here. All right. Well, we're going to get into the Word of God now. And I want to begin by uh, telling you about a movie that came out. It's been out long enough ago now that I feel safe in telling you the spoiler of the movie, the spoiler plot, the spoiler twist of the movie. Back in 1999, there was a movie that came out called The Sixth Sense. Many of you, okay, some of you, a little rumble there. Uh, and in the movie, it is, it, it, it tells the story of a boy who has, and now, okay, I'm not proposing this theologically, but he has the ability to, uh, see dead people. And these dead people, the, the ironic thing about the dead people is that they, they don't realize they're dead. And they're walking around and they're trying to figure out what happened and he can somehow see them and communicate with them. Well, the boy has a psychologist who's played by Bruce Willis. And the movie is really the story of the relationship between this boy and his psychologist who is trying to help him understand what is going on. And to sort of explore whatever this is, the sixth sense that he has. Well, the spoiler twist is, at the end of the movie, Bruce Willis discovers that he himself is one of the dead people. And so there are, I don't know if I ruined it or not, but uh, it's been out long enough, you should have seen it by now. <laughs> Here's the point, is that in the movie, the people that think there, there are people that think that they're alive, but they're actually dead. And there is a case of status confusion with them. They don't actually know what they are. And this kind of status confusion spiritually is at the heart of John chapter 9. The metaphor is not alive and dead. The metaphor is sight and blindness, or light and darkness. 
And so here we are, our next message in our series, I Met Jesus, Encounters with Jesus from the Gospel of John. We're meeting all of these people that had uh, apparently circumstantial encounters with Christ that dramatically changed them. And other than Lazarus, I think the fellow that we're going to meet today uh, epitomizes the difference that meeting Jesus can make. Now, John 9, his story is the entire chapter. It's a long chapter. It's too long for a full exposition to tell the story. So we're going to key in on a couple of key spots and then sort of go quickly through the others. But let's be introduced to our uh, our character this week. And we begin in John chapter 9, verse 1. It says this, As he, this would be Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. All right. What do we know about this guy? Well, right away, we know a few things, important things to the story. First of all, this is a guy who has, uh, who was born blind. Verse 1 says that. And so, right away, I think that we ought to have compassion for him, don't you? Have you ever thought to yourself, if I had to give up one of my five senses, what would it be? Or, what would be the worst one to lose? And in my judgment, sight would be the last sense that I would want to lose. Because the world is so apparently dependent on sight just to function, just to walk from here to there. Not to mention, I rather like all the things that I can see with my eyes. And the world is a beautiful place. And it's filled with all kinds of things that my eyes delight to see. And colors and and rainbows and and this very good-looking church. That wasn't in the notes, and I won't say it tomorrow. Because all the pretty people come tonight. Now you say, you probably say that to all the girls, I mean all the services, and that's right. I do, and I probably will say it tomorrow. But think of, think of this with me. To, to not be able to see, our hearts can only fill with compassion for somebody who is blind. And this is a guy who was born blind. He didn't become blind at some point in his life. This is a guy who never saw the sun, never saw a color, never saw a human face, never saw anything. Born blind. Obviously a very difficult life, which is what we discover next about him. Uh, Verse 8 tells us, I won't read it, but you can see there that verse 8 tells us that he was a beggar. A beggar. To be blind in the first century meant you really only had one career option. You had to beg. You couldn't, uh, they didn't have the technology that, that maybe today allows for certain things, even for a blind person to function in society and to have a career and all the rest. He had to beg. And to beg was basically to acknowledge that I am without resource. I am, I am without a, a career or a skill or a job to earn my living. I am completely dependent upon the gifts of others. He had to beg. Further, there were no facilities that were dedicated to his care. There was no school for the blind. There uh, there was no uh, educational facilities that helped him, uh, equip him in some particular way to do something. There was nothing. This is the guy, he he had nothing. 
at all. In fact, I've been to some places where I have seen blind beggars. I don't know if you've ever seen a blind beggar. Uh, but in particular, in China and in India, as you walk around, there are beggars everywhere, and many of them are blind. And so, and, and they don't look like Stevie Wonder, all right? They're not wearing sunglasses. You look down upon them, just like this guy here, and you could see eyes that were not right and, and, and could not see, and just looking up and seeing nothing. That's what you see as you walk around. That's what this guy did every day of his life. And every day, he would hear children going by, Mommy, what's wrong with him? Mommy, why can't he see? Mommy, why is he here begging all the time? That was his life. So realize, this is a real dude. This is a real guy who had hopes and dreams and desires for his life like you and I have. And yet he was born with a condition that in particular in that society relegated him to the very bottom of the uh, social ladder. He was a beggar. He was blind. And the the third thing that we realize here is that he was a well-known blind beggar. Verse 8 also tells us that he had been there for quite a while. The people are going to know who he is. That's part of the story. So they were accustomed to seeing him. They were accustomed to giving him a little bit of this and a little bit of that, supporting him with their uh, alms and their gifts. All right, so that's the guy, the blind beggar. I wonder what happens. Well, let's get into the story. Look at what it says now. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can do work. Key verse. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now this is not the disciples at their compassionate best, don't you think? They're walking along. You don't even get the idea that they wait to get out of earshot of the guy. He's sitting there right there and they go, hey, Jesus. Who sinned to cause this? This guy? Or his parents, maybe? And what are the disciples doing? They're they're, they're not feeling compassion for the guy. They're trying to figure out, how did he end up in this condition? And the reason that they're saying the things that they do, which we look at now and say, that's so heartless, we can't believe that somebody would say that, is that that was the common thinking of the day. If you had a handicap, if you had, uh, if you were suffering in some particular way, the, the, the reason that you were was that you did something to, to cause that. Or your parents did something to cause that. And they would take it from verses like this, Exodus 34, 7, which says, But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the fourth, third, and fourth generation? And so they would read verses like that, and they would see somebody who was suffering, and they would say, well, obviously, they did something. Obviously, this is God's judgment on their parents for something that they did, and they would assign guilt for the handicap to the person or to the parents or maybe even to the grandparents. This is a lot like what Job's friends did in the book of Job, when Job was had all the horrible things that he was suffering. If you remember, 
Job's friends tried to suggest that Job had done something to deserve this, which of course he had not. Now, the point of this message is not, this is not a sermon on sin and suffering and handicaps and all the rest, but since we're here, I feel like I need to at least highlight what Jesus says here. Because he says, he goes, it's not his fault. It's not his parents' fault. He doesn't have this in his life for either one of those reasons. He is blind that the work of God might be displayed in him. Or we might say it this way, that God might be glorified in his blindness. Now that's a pretty important point as we look at suffering in our own life. What is the point of my suffering? What is the point... Here we have my, my dear sisters who, who come here and, and, uh, interpret for the, uh, the, the, the deaf who come on some, on some Saturday nights, not here tonight, which perhaps is why I feel free to say this. But what do we think as we, as we see somebody who has a handicap like being deaf? Or perhaps worse? What, what do we, how do we interpret that? Or what if it's you? Or what if it's your child? Where do you go? To answer that, because the question that many people ask is the same thing that the disciples imply. What is the question when something bad happens in my life? What do I say? What? You can say it with me. What did I do to deserve this? Like the disciples, we want to figure out some kind of a connection between my suffering and something that I did. The only reason I would be going through this very bad thing or have this bad thing is because I am being judged for something I did. And the point that Jesus makes here is, listen, the purpose of this man's suffering is not to identify who did something wrong, but rather so that God might be glorified in him. And indeed, he was. Here we are 2,000 years later, we're still talking about how God was glorified in this man's blindness. So... I just feel like pastorally, I, I want you to hear that. God's purpose in our trials and in our troubles, as Stephen shared in our worship leading moments ago, was that they might develop perseverance and faithfulness to God. God has a purpose in our suffering, which I think brings meaning to it. So that I'm not like the disciples saying, what did I or somebody else do to deserve this? But rather, I'm saying, how can I glorify God in this trial? Because that is what God is doing. Now, little caveat, the Bible does say sometimes God will bring physical suffering into our life. And sometimes that suffering is the consequence of sinful decisions that we have made. But we are not the judges of when that is the case. Sometimes people see other people who are going through a trial and they get all like, hmm, hmm, I, I know why they've got that going on. I told her years ago she shouldn't be doing that. And now look at her son. Ha, ha, ha. The chickens have come home to roost, right? We are not God. We are not God. We do not stand and we should never sit in that seat of judgment and try to decide the connection between people's suffering or my suffering and maybe something that, ha- that I did in my past. We believe in grace here and God really does forgive. 
the real, the primary purpose of suffering is that God might be glorified in us. And I can point to the cross of Jesus Christ as the greatest example of that. Christ never did one thing wrong. And yet he suffered more than anybody else has ever suffered. And so we see that God brings glory to himself through the pain and the trials of his people. And when we can embrace that, now we can get on board with what God's doing in the trial. Now, that is not the point of this message. So I need to put a period there and move on because it's a long chapter. All right. But I think pastorally, it's an important point for us to understand. Now, the key verse here is verse 5. Jesus says, and and you got to realize the picture here. Okay. There's a blind man. And what does Jesus say? As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now that connection is not a a, a happen chance. A man who has never seen the light, Jesus stands next to him and says, I am the light of the world. Log that in your your brain, because that's going to become important. And we see Jesus doing here what he's done with many other people that we've met so far in the story. Uh, Remember when he met the woman at the well? What was she? She was thirsty. What did he say that he was? I am living water. 15,000 people out in a remote place. There's not a McDonald's in sight. They're hungry. And what does Jesus say? I am the bread of life. And now he stands next to a man who has never seen the light of day. And he stands next to him and he says, I am the light of the world. All of these... In all these cases, he is going from the physical reality to the spiritual need. What did this man really need? To be healed of his eyesight? That would be great. But what he really needed was the light of Christ in his heart. He needed to see down in the soul. And Jesus knew that. So, here sits this blind beggar. Uh... I imagine that he's sitting there. There's no indication that he got into the theological debate. There's no sign that he said, hey, wait a second, since you're talking about this, I've been kind of wondering about this for quite a long time. He says nothing at all. He maybe wasn't even interested in that. But here's the one thing that we can know about the beggar that was sitting there. The greatest fantasy of his life, the thing that every night when he went to sleep and he woke up and as he sat there begging, the thought in the back of his mind was this, I would love to see. If only I could see, I would not have to sit here. If only I could understand what my friends, when they explain to me what the color red looks like, that would be the greatest day of my life. That was in his heart. So look what Jesus did. Verse six, having said these things, He spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. You're all going, I knew he was going to do that. Okay. It is a miracle. All right. It is a miracle. And it needs to be rejoiced that Jesus is a healer for sure. But some of you right now are not thinking so much about how amazing it is that Jesus healed a blind man. You're sitting here and you're wondering, why did he have to spit on the ground and make mud? And some of the boys here are thinking to themselves, see, mom, it's okay that I spit outside. Jesus did it. (laughs) 
Why the mud? (laughs) Okay, there's lots of theories, but here's basically what I would say to it is, I don't know. (laughs) But perhaps the people who have never healed anybody shouldn't sit in judgment on the one who did as to how he should have gone about doing it. Now, did he have to make the mud? Of course not. We know in other cases he healed just by saying it. And, and, the, and, the, and the one guy's son that we already talked about was in the next county, for goodness sake. So it, he didn't need to make the mud. I don't know why he made the mud, but it worked. It worked. I would suspect, though, that the reason that he sent him to the pool was perhaps like Naaman in the Old Testament, who was told, if you want to be healed of your leprosy, go and bathe in the Jordan River. And that that was a kind of... Faith acting out in obedience to actually go into the river and to do it. And maybe that was that for this man. I don't know. The point is, is that he was healed. He was healed. All right, story is long. Now we're going to hit the fast forward here, all right? Because here's what happens. Actually, let me read a little bit. Look at verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but... He is like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my oil and my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. (laughs) Now imagine this with me a second, if you would. And I can relate to it in just a very, very small way. Some of you can as well. I remember when I was in seventh grade, within two weeks' time, I I got braces and glasses in seventh grade. So I like to say I went from totally chic to totally geek in two weeks and have stayed in the geek squad ever since, clearly. Uh, But I remember going to the doctor's office after my glasses were ordered and putting my glasses on for the very first time. And if you wear glasses here, you can relate to this story. Because what happens is your eyes get bad over time. You don't even realize it. And then all of a sudden, you put your glasses on, and it was like the world just, everything came into focus. I remember driving home. I wasn't driving in seventh grade. I was riding. (laughs) I remember remember riding in the car, and I was amazed at the trees. I kept looking at the trees. I'm like, I see branches. I see leaves. Because for a long time, it just was green blobs out there. But I didn't know I was supposed to be able to see individual branches and all that. The world was a beautiful place. I was so excited to see the world that way. Imagine if you'd never seen anything at all. Ever. And you go to the pool salon. And how he got there exactly, I don't know. Because remember, he's blind. Somebody's helping him. I don't know. He gets to the pool and he takes the water and he puts it like this. And suddenly, for the very first time, light, I I sort of see mud. You know, the mud's going down. He's seeing light for the first time. And then he kind of clears it off. And he's going to do in this number. And he, he kind of looks. And suddenly, all of a sudden, he sees the world in perfect clarity for the very first time. Can you imagine it? I I see him suddenly. Everything is something to look at. Every plant. Look, it's, what is that? 
You know, it's, it's grass. And, and every, every, uh, uh, a tree running over to it, feeling the leaf. Oh, look at that. Look at that green. Is that green? It's green. It's green. I love green. And, and, and seeing the sun for the first time. Imagine him walking away from the pool. He's never seen a human being ever in his life. I see him staring at everybody as they go by, you know. This would be a wonderful movie, wouldn't it? Or a moment in a movie. Just what is it like for a blind man to see for the very first time? Wonderful. So he gets back to the area apparently that he was in. And the people are kind of walking by and they're looking at him, right? They're seeing him. They're like, he kind of looks like the beggar. But we know it couldn't be him. And one guy goes, Tom, is that you? It's me. It's me. Couldn't be you. Is this your twin? Where's Tom? He's begging. What? No, it's me. He kind of looks like him, but wait a second. He can see, so it can't be him. And you can see the confusion, can't you? And this would happen in our day as well. Who is this guy? It looks like him, but he can see. I wrote down here, it says, I kind of like this. Tom, is that you? Yes, it can't be. You can see, yes, it's me. Isn't it wonderful? You're freaking me out. Are you his twin? It's me. How did this happen? A guy put mud on my face and told me to wash in the pool salome. And as the mud came off my eyes, I could see. By the way, I imagine you thinner than you are. Yes, it's me. (laughs) So this creates a huge stir in the community. How did this happen? So let me now summarize verses 13 through 34. Something supernatural has happened. The experts in the supernatural were the Pharisees. So let's take them to the Pharisees. Maybe they'll know what happened here. So they take them to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees hear the story of what happened. And the one thing that jumps out to them in the story is not the fact that the guy was blind and now he can see, but was that he was healed on the Sabbath. Now remember, the Pharisees, we've been introduced to them already. They were the people, religious leaders of the day, hyper self-righteous. They made up their own rules. They held to the Bible, but they had their own list on the side that they viewed as equal to the Bible. And so, uh, and by the way, healing on the Sabbath was not forbidden in the scriptures, but it was forbidden by their rules. And I just think that sounds funny. No miracles on Saturdays. As if you can just have miracle any day that you want. If you're going to do miracles, you need to do them on Monday through Friday. But we're closed on Saturdays to miracles. I don't know. So verse 13 begins a debate between the Pharisees as to the propriety of Jesus healing this man on the Sabbath. And there's a debate, because some of them say, he healed a man, he must be from God. Others said, he broke the Sabbath, he healed on the Sabbath, there's no way that any man sent from God would ever do something like that on the Sabbath, there's no way uh, that, 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 that he is from God. So they turn to the former blind man and they say, what do you think? And he says, and this is important, verse 18, he is a prophet. Which was the highest distinction, the biggest word that he could give him at that point. He's a prophet. They call the man's parents in, in verse 18, hoping that they maybe could shed some light on this whole thing. The parents are like, um, he's of age, don't ask us. They're afraid of the Pharisees, and they're intimidated, and so they just basically say, don't, don't talk to us. Verse 24, they call the man back in, and he gives them an honest, common-sense response, which, of course, infuriates them. How did Jesus do this? He answers in verse 27, I've told you already. 
Do you want to become one of his disciples? Which do the Pharisees like that suggestion? Not at all. The man goes on to say, how can he be a sinner? He healed a man born blind. Who's ever heard of such a thing? He must be from God. And of course, the Pharisees can't bear this logic anymore. They excommunicate him out of the temple. And the chapter concludes with Jesus finding the man. And let's read this now, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Now, I want to talk with you about what this chapter is really all about. That's the story. What is the story of the healing of the blind beggar really all about? Notice that there are 41 verses in this chapter. How many of them deal with the actual healing itself? Two. 39 verses deal with the real point of the story which is not the fact that Jesus healed this man, although that is certainly part of the story. It is about light and darkness. It is about seeing and believing, or not seeing and willful unbelief. And it is wonderfully written, maybe you'll spend some more time in it, to see how John weaves this this picture of light and darkness through the life of the blind man and the healing of the blind man But he's really wanting to juxtapose the Pharisees who think they can see, but can't. And the blind man who couldn't see at the beginning of the story, but by the end can see physically and spiritually. Notice just the words. I'm just pulling the words basically out of this story. Notice what the Pharisees say. Jesus is not from God. He doesn't keep our rules. He is a sinner. We are disciples of Moses. You, they say to the blind man, you were born in sin, which was a pejorative reminder to him that he was born blind, suggesting that, of course, same as the disciples, it was his fault. And finally, they say, we are the experts. Are you lecturing us? Who do you think that you are to be telling us anything? So there you have an example of people who think that they see, but actually are walking in darkness. They are the blind ones. But when we look at the, at the blind man, there is a progression. One commentator pointed this out. There's a progression in, there's an evolution in the man's understanding of who Jesus is. Early in the story, he says he's a prophet. But then later, not only is he a healer, but he acknowledges that he comes from God, argues with the Pharisees that he is from God, that he is the Son of Man when Jesus meets him. And then we have that very powerful statement that I want to ring in your hearts as you leave here tonight. Lord, I believe. Three words filled with meaning. The Lordship 
of Christ, an acknowledgement that he is now Lord. I, personal pronoun, I. And then the key, I believe. I believe. And it says, and he worshiped him. Who really can see here? Who really has sight? Do you see the point? It's not the Pharisees, who everybody thought were the spiritually uh, enlightened ones. It's the poor blind beggar man. Who would be the last person that you would expect to be the hero of the story or an example of how we ought to be? But indeed he is. So do you see it? Light, darkness, belief, unbelief, blindness, sight. And this is how it's like the sixth sense. You get to the end of the story and the it's status confusion, right? The Pharisees are the blind ones and the blind man is the one who can see. Or to say it succinctly, here is the point. The purpose of the healing of the blind man was to illustrate that Jesus is the light of the world. His light blinds some and causes others to see. And herein lies the key. And this is something I learned this week. I, I honestly, I was talking to these people before the service and they said, how's the message tonight? Well, I don't know, but I'll tell you what, I learned something this week. And what I learned is, is that when Jesus says that he is the light of the world, he's not saying, although it's true, he's not saying that I am, I am truth come into the world. Rather, he is the light that divides people. Who they think he is shows whether they are blinded by the light or whether they can see by the light. Okay? That's the difference. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4. Amen. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4. The Apostle Paul uh, basically explains it the same way. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said... For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Or in other words, has made our eyes to see. Right? We are naturally born in sin. We are naturally unable to see and discern Christ for who he is in his glory. Jesus is the light of the world in this sense. That the gospel of his glory and his majesty, the narrative of his life, death, resurrection, the whole, the sum, the, the core of, the, of Christian truth is the light of Jesus, which either shines in a way that I can see who he is, in which I case I respond in faith, or which blinds me to the true nature of his glory and keeps me in a state of unbelief. And the entire world is in one of those two camps. This entire room is in one of those two places. We either have people here who are blinded, or who see the glory of Christ and, like the blind man, believe.
We see this in the Pharisees. Jesus heals a man. What do they obsess over? He did it on the wrong day. It's almost humorous. Willful unbelief, they would not acknowledge his glory. That is the meaning of verse 39, where Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. You ever wonder how there are some people who are just so against Christ? Like just adamantly against Christ. And you say, how could somebody be so mad at him? He did good things. He said good things. I mean, at the least case, you could kind of say he was a good guy. But people hate him, right? Why? The light of the glory of Christ, like the sun, when you're driving, right on the horizon, you can't see anything. They are driving blind. One commentator, he is the real light which shows up the hidden motives and the darkest secrets of men. The inevitable consequence of his presence in the world is a separation between those who claim to have religious insight, though they are in fact spiritually blind, and those who, conscious that they are blinded by sin, pray that they may be given the sight of which the sin inherent in their nature has robbed them. I want to highlight to you again the progression of the, of the, of the, of the blind man. In the story, the first thing he says about who he is, he's a prophet. He admired him, okay? He admired him. Next, he's sent from God. He sees now something uniquely special about him. He sees a deity, a divinity in his person. He is the son of man, which is to say that he is divine. And then finally, he is Lord where I personally submit my life and trust in him. And he went from prophet to Lord. I'm a part of a uh, cohort of pastors. Uh, I've been, it's a two-year program that I, I'm in through the Leadership Network based out of Dallas. And it's basically, there's, there's 10 of us. Uh, we all pastor churches kind of like size and scope of Bethel or larger, and we're all about the same age. And so the Leadership Network gets us together, and we kind of talk, and it's really been a wonderful experience. I've learned a lot. And I had this last week, I had my my second of four sessions with these guys. So Thursday night, I had a flight back uh, from Dallas up here, flew southwest, and so they don't have direct out of Dallas to Chicago, so you have to have a little hop here and then hop there. So uh, I had a flight from Dallas to Kansas City, and by some, I don't know, I would call it a miracle, but some wonderful providence, I walk in, and there is the window seat in the front row wide open. Nobody's sitting in the middle one. I'm like, anybody sitting there? I'm in. So sit down by the window. I'm thinking, this is my lucky day. This is going to be great. You know, people keep filing in, and they're walking right by. I'm like going, maybe nobody's going to sit there. It's going to be awesome. And then right at the end, of course, somebody came and ruined it. Uh, <laughs> And so in walks this guy, kind of big guy, kind of big guy. Uh, and, and he sits down and he had a suit on and, and uh, looked all, you know, to be a businessman. And so um, we start talking. We have a one-hour flight. We start talking. And right away, we kind of hit it off. 
because uh, we were going to Kansas City. He's from Kansas City, so we got talking about the Chiefs, and then we got talking about the Bears, and we're talking football and sports and that kind of stuff. And so we were having a nice conversation. I kind of liked him in spite of the fact that this guy used profanity at a level that I have not heard in a very long time. I mean, it was like blankety, blankety, blank, English word, blankety, blankety, blank. Seriously, he was just, it was crazy. So we're talking and, you know, about this, that, and the other. And and he goes, what do you do for a living? (laughs) I said, uh, I, I pastor a church. (laughs) Now you're laughing because you're thinking to yourself, oh, that guy would have been so embarrassed by that and all that. Not at all. In fact, his language did not change one bit. The thing that changed was that, uh, I think he now had some things he wanted to share. It was like, you know, having the priest next to you in the plane or something. And so he, he begins to talk with me about um, his life a little bit. And the, he said, I got divorced a couple years ago and starts sharing about how hard that has been. And, and then he got talking about, you know, blankety, blankety, blank, my wife, blankety, blankety, blank. And, and he gets talking about um, a friend of his who he used to go to uh, Kansas University football games with every Saturday. And this friend, like a year and a half ago, committed suicide. And he says, you know what? I'm still mad at him over that. And so he's, you know, he's sharing. And, and then he gets talking about another friend of his who um, is married, got married later in life, had children later in life, and was really struggling with everything and was really seriously depressed. And he says, man, I was hurting for the guy. He was in bad shape. And so I called him one day and, and you know, blankety blank, called him one day, blankety blank. And, and, and uh, I, said, I said, dude, what's wrong with you? And he shared. And, and so you know what I told him to do? I told him to go to church. Because that's what I do. This is one of the strangest conversations I've had in my life. I'm glad the guy goes to church. But how do you explain people in the world who, in one sentence, can take Jesus Christ's name in vain? And in the next, encourage somebody to go to the church of Jesus Christ. How do you explain that? The same way you explain a blind man who walks around in a room and just keeps running into things. Because when you can't see, when you can't see, then... You make a mess of things, don't you? So easily. And that is the world that we live in, friends. And that was you and me before the light of Christ shone in our hearts in a way not to blind us, but to help us see that Christ is the Savior of the world. So what this means, friends 
is that he, that he is the light it means that his life, his teaching, his death on the cross, that this whole thing unveils him. And that light either allows us to see him for who he is and to bend the knee with the, with the Lordship of Christ or to continue in our blindness and to miss his glory. And tonight I just want to say to the room, are you blind or can you see? By blind I mean, do you see Jesus as the Son of God, Savior of the world, lover of your soul, who died on the cross in your place, bearing the, the sin, guilt that deservedly is ours, and who says, all who believe in me shall be saved. Do you see him for who he is or not? And that man in the story was introduced to the glory of Christ. And his words, I think, are a wonderful guide for you. Lord, I believe. Lordship of Christ, submitting to him. I, personal pronoun, believe, I trust, I rely on what you did and who you are. And I believe if you will simply follow the path of the blind man, that tonight could be the night that you see for the very first time. And join the rest of us, former blind people, who have come to see Christ for who he is.